maybe you've heard it said, people tend not to care about what you know until they first know that you actually care. People tend not to care about what you know until they first know that you actually care. Is that true for you? Are you slow to trust people and reluctant to hear what they have to say or to teach you until they've proven to you that they actually care about you? And to expand on that question a little further, we should also consider how will you know if someone truly does care for you? Here's one story some of us may resonate with. There was once a wife who had trouble getting any attention from her husband, especially during football season. When the game came on, he tuned her out. One day, she reached the point of exasperation and stood between her husband and the football game and asked, Do you love me more than football? He paused for a moment and then said, I love you more than hockey. Actions speak louder than words, don't they? Now, it's not to say that words have no weight to them. The Proverbs are full of examples that show that words do. For example, Proverbs 12, verse 18, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Or Proverbs 12, verse 25, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And then there's that that one verse that's very popular, maybe on your refrigerator or in your car. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I mean, did you just hear just a small sample there of how much value and weight our words have? The tongue of the wise brings healing. A good word makes an anxious heart glad. Edifying speech can bless its hearers. When uttered in timely and appropriate ways, words that are carefully chosen, biblically saturated in wisdom, can be powerfully used of God to affect someone's life. Friends, never underestimate the life transforming effect you can have on another person's life simply by what you say to them or by what you teach them. You and I can be the very instrument in the Redeemer's hands that is drawn from the wisdom of our Redeemer's fountain. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Colossians 3 verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So words are important. I am preaching right now using human vocabulary. The Bible has been handed down to us through generations of preserving the word of God through men to men. Words are important. 
But words alone, if they are never accompanied by actions, can feel cheap. Words without actions can feel like a bootleg movie sold in the black market or a yellowish plastic ring that says 24 karat gold. Our words, if they're never backed up with tangible, invisible ways, our words won't have much weight to them. It can be like handing someone a box with a bow that says happy birthday or happy anniversary, but the box has nothing inside of it. Actionless love, motionless compassion is really just an empty box with undelivered promises that you're saying to someone that you're saying you care about, but there's really nothing there. Like the husband who says he loves his wife, but only serves his wife in order to get something in return. The wife who says she respects her husband, but often shows contempt and cold-heartedness toward him. The parent who says that children are a gift from God, but rarely spends quality time investing in their children. That's why the Apostle John gained his understanding of this word and deed relationship from our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of grace and truth, word and deed. Maybe you've read 1 John before. It's a pretty hard book to read, but it's very straightforward sometimes. And one of the things you'll pick up in John's first epistle is how he shows the inseparable link between authentic words of love and authentic deeds of love. For example, 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18. By this, we know love. That he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. And in truth, friends, we live in a world full of needs, don't we? Whether that's looking at how upset or angry or anxious you've been, just look at your text messages this week, your emails that you've had with others, or even just watching the television this past week, seeing the catastrophic crisis taking place in Ukraine. Friends, the human condition, our neediness, is not hard to pinpoint. If you can't see that, you're, you're living in a hole. You're naive. Just spend time with people. Educate yourself on what's going on in the world, and you will see that human neediness has been here since the fall. Friends, we live in a world full of problems and pressures, full of excuses and exhaustion, full of sorrows and suffering, full of sin and separation. And because we are created beings, we have limitations that require creaturely care. Friends, that means we're not self-sufficient. We are finite and fallible people. 
that exist for an infinitely good and perfect God. That means we are dependent on this God every waking moment. Isn't this precisely how Jesus taught his disciples to pray daily? Give us this day our daily bread. We are human beings made in God's image. But make no mistake about it, we are not God. We are God's creation, and in Christ, we are God's sheep. As Psalm 100 verse 3 reminds us, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So if we're like struggling with pride this week, maybe you walked into church kind of a little puffed up for whatever reason, I just want to remind you, when I read the Bible and when you read the Bible, we never read that we're the great I am. We are the great I am nots. We exist for the I am who's always been. And we only breathe because the one who's always existed wills that to happen. Friends, that means we don't need God like a lucky charm or some furry rabbit or some kind of superstitious good luck charm. We are utterly dependent on our maker every hour of every day. And friends, because we are creaturely beings, we have greater needs than just another meal. We have needs that touch the deepest part of who we are. Our bodies, our personhood, our hearts, our very soul. Beloved, we are physical and spiritual beings. Be very careful of overemphasizing one or the other. We are both. We are embodied souls, and that means we have needs that arise out of both aspects of who we are. So how are you doing this morning? If everything I just said we can agree upon, how are you doing? Are you energized or exhausted in life? Are you feeling full and happy? Or are you feeling needy and helpless? Are you confident where God has you today and what he's calling you to do next in your life? Or are you perplexed and doubtful, maybe even aimless, directionless, clueless? Are you facing your present circumstances with faith? Or are you floundering in fear? Friends, how are you doing this morning? That's not something we say to each other simply at Walmart. That's what we should be asking one another as the body of Christ. How are you doing, really? You see, we can all find ourselves running hard on the outside, smiling on the outside, but growing weary on the inside. Friends, that's because left to ourselves, we are all aimless, directionless, undisciplined, uncertain. We are all spiritually malnourished sheep who have sinned and gone astray each to our own way. And that means every single one of us, including me. Left to ourselves, we are all lost sheep who need a caring shepherd. 
So no matter where you're at this morning or where you're going to be at later this week or next year, we're kind of all in the same boat. We all have needs and we all need God. Friends, we want someone who truly cares about us and we want someone who can actually meet those needs. That's true for us in 2022, and it was true for many others in a Galilean hill country a long time ago. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We're picking back up in our study in the Gospel of Mark, looking at Mark 6, verses 30 to 56. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 400. In 91, Mark chapter 6. Earlier in Mark 6, where we left off last time, we learned the importance of having the right expectations of the Christian life. We read where Jesus was rejected of all places in his own hometown of Nazareth. And so we learned as disciples of Jesus, if we're going to follow the way of the Master, we shouldn't be surprised when we too find unbelief and rejection because of our obedience to Jesus, sometimes very close to home. Jesus then commissioned the 12 disciples on their first short-term missions trip, and he charged them to travel lightly and travel in pairs. And then we left off really in that really grotesque and inhumane portion of Mark's gospel here, where we see the concluding story, the obituary of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was faithful, wasn't he? He was obedient to do what God had called him to prepare the way for the Messiah and guess where that obedience to God led him. It eventually got him arrested. It eventually got him beheaded. He set out to do from the very beginning. John decreased so that Christ might increase through his life. We pick up this morning in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Please follow with me. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. 
Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on the beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, Cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word. This next portion in Mark's gospel contains four different scenes that display the same expression of Jesus' heart for needy people. And please do not think more highly of yourself than this crowd. You and I are included in those needy people. If you're taking notes, my points are going to be broken up into four scenes or four situations that each contain Jesus' response to the needs around him. Point number one, the busy disciples bring Jesus a progress report. The busy disciples bring Jesus a progress report. Number two, the needy crowds flock to Jesus. The needy crowds flock to Jesus. Number three, the perplexed disciples bring Jesus a problem they cannot resolve. The perplexed disciples bring Jesus a problem they cannot resolve. And number four, the fearful disciples are separated from Jesus the fearful disciples are separated from Jesus. Now, these points, if you're into mountain climbing, are going to serve kind of like handles. They're going to help you hold on to where the text is going to show us this, who Jesus is and how he responds to the physical and spiritual needs of others. So, point number one, the busy disciples bring Jesus a progress report. Look with me again at verse 30. The apostles 
returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Uh, When Mark says the apostles returned to Jesus, he's just speaking about the 12 disciples, the ones who had been previously sent out. That's literally the root word. It's what it means to be an apostle, those who are commissioned and sent out on behalf of another. Uh, These men were sent out on a delegated task by Jesus, and they were to go out in pairs. As you may recall, we read the instructions Jesus gave these disciples, these apostles, back in verses 7 to 13. And Jesus, we read about in Mark here, uh, instructed them how they were to travel and the mission they were called to accomplish. Uh, What was that mission again? Well, they were to preach about the kingdom of God. They were to call people to repentance and faith in King Jesus. And as they preached, Jesus would empower them to deliver people from demonic oppression. Uh, These men were really representing Jesus to the unbelieving world. They were like ambassadors walking into a foreign country, and they were picking up where Jesus had left off. And they most likely traveled to the same places that Jesus had already been evangelizing, as we see there in verse 6b. That means Jesus was sending them out like farmers to collect the harvest. Jesus had planted the seeds of the gospel in these surrounding villages, and he was sending them out to gather those and to water the seeds of those who had been changed by Christ. But Jesus warned them, there's going to be some who reject you and reject your message and reject your Jesus. And if you come across that situation, you should move on. Dust off the feet, he tells them. And for those who received their message, those who welcomed their message, those who were changed by their message about Jesus, they were to remain and keep plodding along, sharing the good news among them. But here in verse 30, they've returned. The plane flight has come back home. The bus has pulled up in the driveway. And they're like kids who's got a report card. And let's say they did pretty good this semester. They want to show Jesus. Jesus, aren't aren't you proud of us? Jesus, we've been working hard. We've done what you told you. we got so many stories to tell. They're probably high-fiving each other. A few of them are exhausted. They want to tell their disciple how it went. They're wanting to debrief, tell the progress report of all the ways that God used them, what they taught, what they saw. But how do you think Jesus responds to their progress report? Do you think he says, work harder, men? Too much standing around. Get back on the road. Pick up yourself by your own bootstraps. There's plenty of work to be done. Do you think Jesus began to crack the whip on his disciples? Or do you think Jesus had a different heart posture towards these young men that he dearly loved? Look at verses 31 and 32 again. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Friends, just when you think 
Jesus would have said, try harder. Do more. He instead says the total opposite. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place. Your translation might say a quiet place, a secluded place, a remote place. And then he tells them what they're to do. Rest a while. Instead of reloading their schedule with more things to do, Jesus says, you need to recharge your batteries, young men, because if you don't chill out, you're going to burn out. Relax for a little while. Instead of making their vocation harder, he told them to take a brief vacation in order to rest a while. Uh, Parents, when you are most exhausted and you feel most like a failure in your parenting, What is the first image you have in your mind of Jesus looking at you? Do you think he's disappointed in you? Do you think his only words are simply, do better, work harder? Friends, one of the reasons why so many Christians in general, regardless if you're a parent or not, struggle with discouragement more than we should It's because we have a wrong view of Jesus. Because maybe you grew up in a home where a dad never told you he loved you. Or a mom who was very legalistic and perfectionistic and you feel like you never measured up. But friends, Jesus is not a harsh taskmaster. Friends, he's not. That's a lie from the evil one. Listen to these words afresh from Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, those are not the words from an insensitive taskmaster. Those are the words from a gentle and lowly friend. A gentle and lowly friend who loves you. Who wants to give you rest for the deepest part of who you are. Uh, Friends, I don't know if if you've ever been there before and never thought about it, but raising children, discipling believers... And evangelizing unbelievers is sometimes almost impossible to distinguish. There's a ton of similarities there. You see, parents are called to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4, which is really just another way of saying, show and tell your kids how to follow Jesus. That is the marching orders from Jesus. We don't have a huge New Testament parenting manual. It's really show and tell your kids what it means to follow Jesus. And friends, that's the marching orders for everyone in this room. Regardless if you have kids or not, our mission, our marching orders are to take whatever relationships Jesus has given us, whatever ministry opportunities he's put in our place, and we are called to show and tell others what it means to follow Jesus. And friends, let me go ahead and tell you this. 
It's really hard work. Discipleship, evangelism, shepherding and pastoring others is really hard work. It's slow work. It's ungrateful work. It can be exhausting work. But at the same time, following Jesus isn't all about how hard you work. Sometimes we need to learn how to rest in Jesus and be refreshed from our labors for Jesus. Just this past week, I I saw this modeled very well from one of our own members, Leslie Chain. Leslie serves as the service team leader of our children's ministry. Uh, She sent out this email this week to all who are serving in our children's ministry that stated the following. And granted, Leslie had no idea I was going to put this in the sermon, so this is all me and the Holy Spirit on this one. Dear child care volunteers, please know each of you are greatly appreciated. There's the encouragement. It is a joy to get to serve our families and the children of CCBC through Sunday child care. There's the work. But I also know that you occasionally may need a quarter off to be able to fully sit under the preaching of God's word. That's love. Please don't hesitate to let me know if you are in need of a break from serving in child care. That's Christ-like. Do you see that? Friends, that is to touch every aspect of our life, every ministry in this church. I haven't preached the last two Sundays partly to show you I need rest for my soul. I need to be fed the word of God and not be the only one doing that. Friends, and this doesn't just touch the church. This is inside your home and outside your home. Whatever you do throughout the week, we need to learn how to rest in Jesus and be refreshed from our labors for Jesus. So here's some examples of how you can do that. Strategically plan a vacation and then make it happen. Volunteer to watch kids for another family to give mom and dad a break for several hours. Utilize a calendar and block out times in advance to simply rest. Kevin DeYoung says it very well. A schedule is a way to lock in where you're going to say no. A few other examples. Use one day a week to carve out time to just do something you enjoy. So here's some practical advice I was given years ago that's been helpful. If you typically work all week with your hands, Sabbath with your mind. If you typically work all week with your mind and your emotions, Sabbath with your hands. Do something physically energizing. For some married couples, this might be praying and considering having one spouse work part-time. It might mean for some married couples for them to consider one spouse coming home and so that their life can be a little more endurable and there's one primary breadwinner. Maybe you have to lower your standard of living for a season in order for your family to have a more realistic pace of life. And regardless if you're single or married, young or old, seasoned in ministry or a brand new Christian, we should all cultivate humility by asking for help. In the local church, we are called to lean upon one another for help. That's that's how we grow in humility. Some practical things to think about. If you are serving actively and faithfully every week for our church, regardless of what you're doing, 
Friends, train others to do what you can do in the church so that you can take a break and others can step up and fill the gap. And if you're having a hard time looking for margin in your life, you've taken all these suggestions and you're still just kind of like, eh, I don't know. Invite another mature believer into your life who can watch how you're spending your time. Look at your sleep habits. Look at what you're doing throughout the day. I would encourage you to do that. It could save you a lot of regrets down the road by asking others into your life to help you. Rest may come into your life when humility to ask others for help comes first. Now, let me just make one more qualification before we move on. Jesus is not calling any of us to a lifetime calling of beach bums or to be a professional couch potato. No, he's, he's calling us to trust him when we work. Watch this. Trust him even when we rest. Trust him when you work. Trust him even when we rest. Friends, pray for wisdom and humility to see how those principles apply in your life. Now, when instructing these zealous young men in the pastor's college, Charles Spurgeon gave this advice to his students who wanted to become pastors. Notice what the wonderful preacher taught these young men. Quote, the bow cannot always be bent without fear of breaking. Repose is as needful to the mind as sleep to the body. Our Sabbaths are our days of toil, and if we do not rest upon some other day, we shall break down. Even the earth must lie fallow and have her Sabbaths, and so must we. Hence the wisdom and compassion of our Lord when he said to his disciples, let us go into the desert and rest a while. What? When the people are fainting? When the multitudes are like sheep upon the mountains without a shepherd? Does Jesus talk of rest? When scribes and Pharisees like grievous wolves are rending the flock, does he take his followers on an excursion into a quiet resting place? Does some red-hot zealot denounce such atrocious forgetfulness of present and pressing demands? Let him rave in his folly. The master knows better than to exhaust his servants and quench the light of Israel. Rest time is not waste time. It is economy to gather fresh strength. So the greater demands on your life, family, ministry, work, the greater need you have to be alone with Jesus. Now, the disciples gave Jesus a progress report. And Jesus told them to rest. However, that rest didn't last very long. The phone call rang during vacation, and they had to get back to work, which leads to point number two. The needy crowds flocked to Jesus. Look with me in the next few verses. Verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. It's very clear throughout Mark's gospel that Jesus cared, and he especially cared right there in verses 30 to 32, for his weary and tired disciples. It's very obvious he loved these men. But Jesus didn't love simply his inner circle. He didn't simply love his, quote, best friends. He cared for the masses as they came with all their problems 
in needs too. Have you ever had one of those days or weeks where you just wish cell phones didn't exist? Like you just wanted to take your smartphone and see if you can outthrow, you know, Tom Brady, chunk it in the ocean, kind of go back to the 80s. Let's just pick up the phone at the house or a payphone maybe. And it's not because you're necessarily tired or you're anti-technology. It's just you don't want to hear about anybody's problems. You just kind of want to go la, 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 and just make believe everything's great. I don't want to turn on the television. I don't want to get another text. I don't want to get another email. Well, if you've ever been there, you can just keep that between you and Jesus. I know you're out there. You don't have to raise your hand. But we know. For Jesus, just when you think they're on their mini vacation, he's telling his guys to take a chill pill, and the crowds are coming. You would think this is the part in Mark's gospel where we're going to hear Jesus say, that's enough. Leave me alone. Come back next week or perhaps never. Jesus looks at the hustling and bustling crowds with all their problems, all their drama, all their aches and pains, all their fears and anxieties. And look what verse 34 says. How does he respond to the crowd? When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, The word compassion in the Greek, it means to have the bowels yearn. The intestines be in agony and well up from within. That was just an ancient way of saying from the innermost core of someone's being, they were affected by what they saw. In this case, it was Jesus feeling sympathy and having pity for their suffering. And their needs. Uh, this past week, if you've been watching the news or looking on your phones, seeing those stunning and awful and heartbreaking images of dads hugging little daughters saying goodbye, I mean, that's gut-wrenching. You know, fathers, if you dread putting your kids to bed at night, repent. Don't put that on your wife. If you can, put your little kids to bed because there's fathers in Ukraine right now that would give anything to do that. Friends, what we've seen before us is our stories and stories that have been going on for a long time in our world. And friends, it should well up compassion, especially in the bowels of Christians. And did you know, of all the ways Jesus expressed his human emotion on earth. Did you know the most common way the inspired text of Scripture describes our Lord? He was a man of compassion. It's the most common description of his emotions towards the people. You see, as a man, Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions, and yet he never sinned in those emotions. That means that when Jesus got angry, he was perfect in his anger. And when Jesus showed compassion, he remained perfect in his compassion. And in his compassion for others, friends, he cared for the whole person, body and soul. As theologian B.B. Warfield once said, hearing the plea of two blind men 
or that of the leper for cleansing or simply seeing a distressed widow set our Lord's heart throbbing with pity. Notice again the disposition of our Lord towards needy people. He saw the crowds and he had compassion well up from the bowels. His compassion on the inside, though, it welled up into action on the outside. The pity in our Lord's gut led him towards people in their suffering. Not to avoid them in their suffering. And notice what Jesus initially does to show his compassion. I think it's very different than we often think. Mark tells us, and he began to teach them many things. Remember, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus didn't roll his eyes in disdain over them. He didn't get annoyed or impatient with them. He didn't say, oh, great, here we go again, more needy people with all their problems. Jesus could see right through their grumbling bellies. The stress and agony of toting along their families all the way to this Galilean hill country, looking for some kind of hope in a man named Jesus from Nazareth. And yet what Jesus saw were sheep who had no shepherd. And Jesus saw that they had a greater need than a Subway sandwich. He saw that they needed the words of life. They needed sound doctrine. They needed the good news that the king had arrived. Now, don't misunderstand me. When we look in Mark 6, Jesus did not meet everyone's need at every time in every situation. As we've read in the Gospel of Mark, there were definitely times where he slipped through the crowd. He avoided the masses. He didn't heal everyone. Jesus certainly didn't cast his pearls before swine. Jesus knew the difference between a wolf in sheep's clothing and genuine sheep who really needed help. So Jesus wasn't just casting out, you know, get your healing, get your Bible Devo to simply people who cared nothing for him either. But this compassionate shepherd, our Lord Jesus, knew the needs of these broken people, especially because he knew they were untaught and not pastored by faithful shepherds. Friends, that's, that's important for us to hear this morning too. You and I might think we need a better job. I need a more loving spouse. I need a more spacious house. I want more respect from my pastors or fellow church members. Friends, what you and I need is truth. We need the words of life from the word of God to breathe into our dusty and cold hearts. That's what we need mostly in our lives. You see, Jesus cares about all suffering especially eternal suffering. CCBC, care about all people's suffering and all types of it, but especially care about eternal suffering. That's why Jesus, when he approaches the crowd, knew there is coming a day their bellies could be filled and their souls be lost. They needed to be taught. They needed to be preached to. They needed to be loved with the words of life. Brian Borgman here, in his book, Faith and Feelings, really challenges us as Christians. As we think about our Lord's compassion for the crowds, 
and the type of compassion we often don't show. Notice what he says. The Lord Jesus is our pattern for compassion. He feels for his people in their affliction. He promises out of compassion to deal gently with his sheep. He feels for those who are sick and suffering. He has compassion for the lost and perishing, even in their rebellion against his rule. The compassion of Jesus should mold and shape our emotions. If our theology cuts the nerve of compassion for the lost, then our theology is not biblical. If our theology stultifies compassion for the suffering, then we are not thinking or feeling like our Savior. We need to see people as Jesus sees them and feel for people as he feels for them. That's a good word. Friends, that's a good time to examine your heart today. Would those who know you really well describe you as compassionate, sympathetic, tender-hearted. When people's sin and suffering is kind of brought your way, does it cause you to show sympathy towards them? Or are you just indifferent? Maybe cold? Praise God that he has given some in the church the gift of mercy. <laughs> Praise God for those brothers and sisters who are good at asking questions and are good listeners. Praise God for those who have a knack of simply asking how you're doing and they pull up the chair to show they actually care. Friends, if you are someone who basically admits, I'm really not as compassionate as I should be. Actually, I'm even kind of cold and insensitive sometimes. I would encourage you to look afresh at Christ's compassion for you. Look at others in the church that have the gift of mercy and they comfort those in their suffering well. Spend time around those people some more. I would basically guarantee the Lord will use that to help kind of soften some of your sharp edges and cause you to be compassionate to those who are in need. Uh, members of CCBC, that means we should pray to be a compassionate church. We should be a church full of love in word and full of love in deed. And friends, because Jesus diagnoses this crowd's problem as sheep without a shepherd, we should pray for churches who don't have a pastor. Do you know of churches that don't have a pastor right now? Are you praying for them? Are you praying that God would give them faithful shepherds? You see, churches without faithful shepherds will be churches full of aimless, starving, and fearful sheep who are open to attacks. Sheep without faithful shepherds lack guidance in their lives. They're like pendulums swinging all over the place. That's why faithful shepherds come alongside them to care for them. Don't you remember what the Apostle Paul told the Ephesian elders or the Ephesian pastors? Acts 20, verses 28 to 30, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care, or the Greek word there is to pastor, to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after him. 
Friends, if, if you know someone in your life today who claims to be a Christian, but they don't belong to a healthy local church that has faithful pastors, encourage them to find one. A sheep wandering out on Rogers Avenue should alarm us. And in the same way, seeing a Christian who's not being shepherded should alarm us. And friends, I would also encourage you to pray for your pastors here at CCBC. We are nobody's savior, but we are under shepherds. Pray that we would shepherd the flock here with compassion and through faithful teaching. Pastors need to be shepherded and encouraged so that we too can shepherd and encourage you. The needy crowds flocked to Jesus, and Jesus, as the compassionate shepherd, taught them many things. But Jesus cared not only for their spiritual, eternal state, he did care for their temporal, physical needs as well. And that leads to point number three. The perplexed disciples bring Jesus a problem they cannot resolve. Now, in verses 35 to 44, you can take a deep breath. It's going to be a little quicker here. We see the miraculous sign that is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Now, truth be told, I'm going to tell you a little pastor's secret and let you in on a secret. There's a lot we could talk about on this one text. But I have to preach Mark chapter 8 in a couple of weeks, and it's the feeding of the 4,000, and I need to save some material for that sermon. Because if I give you everything, the glories of the Old New Testament fulfilled in this, I ain't got nothing to tell you in a few weeks. So just a little pastor secret, Jansen, just tuck that away from your pocket. You're preaching through a book of the Bible, and you see two themes showing up in three weeks apart. Save some material. But for now. In this miraculous situation we read about in Mark 6, we do see Jesus call his disciples to trust him again. This time it's not in their vacations or rest, but to trust him in a situation that is humanly impossible to accomplish. They've got five loaves of bread. They got two fish. They've got over 5,000 mouths to be fed. If you've ever prepared meals for a potluck dinner, this would give you more than a migraine. Five loaves of bread, two fish, and over 5,000 people. We're talking a town twice as big as Lavaca that needs to be fed. Five loaves, two fish. The disciples are looking at Jesus and going, this is a logistical nightmare. They're looking with their limited perception, and they're going, every odd is against us. Has Jesus lost it? Notice a few things. These young men had the audacity to tell Jesus. In verses 35 to 36, they tell Jesus, in essence, Jesus, this is a bad location. We're in some desolate place. There's no Walmart. There's no Target. There's no harps nearby. And this is bad timing. It's getting late. Sun's going down. We don't have smartphones yet in our world to shine the light. We don't have enough candles for 5,000 plus people. 
Friends, the disciples are looking at this like a perfect storm. Bad timing, bad location. Friends, let's just go back to vacation. Jesus, tell them to get out of here. That's what they're saying to him. Jesus, your idea is wonky. It's off. It's a logistical nightmare. But what does Jesus tell them? This is our Lord now, the compassionate Lord. He tells them, you feed them. The disciples suddenly realize, oh boy, how are we going to feed these people? Jesus, bad location, bad timing, and bad accounting. This is not making sense. We've got five loaves and two fish. But friends, do not miss this super significant point in the disciples' life. Remember, Jesus is discipling them. He's training them for the ministry when he's gone one day. He's saying, young men, you know I've been teaching the masses all day, but I'm also still teaching you. This is an internship on steroids, young men. I'm getting you ready. I'm putting the ball back in your court. I'm not letting you off the hook. Your comfort zone, I'm about to blow up. You see, Jesus was a wise discipler. He put the challenge back on the young men he was discipling. And basically, he says this. Take an inventory of what you already have. Do what I tell you to do and leave the results to me. Take an inventory of what you already have. Don't talk about what you don't have, what you wish you had. Look at what you've already been given. Do what I tell you to do and leave the results to me. Now, the disciples are bewildered. They are perplexed, but they're going, well, he's done quite a bit before. And Jesus delivers a solution that only God can provide. In verse 39, notice what Jesus' first instructions are. I love Jesus' simple instructions to the disciples. He tells them to sit down in the green grass. Stop fretting. Stop worrying. Stop running around like sheep who are scared and scattered. And he's telling them to follow my lead. Follow me. Then in verse 40, he tells them to gather in groups. He's bringing order out of chaos. He's taking the scattered and helpless sheep and giving them now protection and organization. They are going to now eat from the same bread, from the same source, as they're trusting in the same shepherd. Then verse 41, we see Jesus stand in the gap for the people. Like Moses for Israel in the Old Testament, Christ is mediating between God and man for the people. He intercedes for them. He prays for God's blessing and mercy upon them. And just like Moses looked to God for manna in the wilderness, Jesus was looking to his father for bread in that Galilean hill country. And what was the result? Look at verse 42. Mark 6, 42. And they, how many ate? All. And they were what? Satisfied or filled. You see, the disciples brought Jesus a problem that left them perplexed. 
But Jesus delivers a solution that only God could provide. Like Israel of old, the disciples were having to learn that same ancient lesson the Israelites had to learn in the wilderness. It's the same truth that Jesus rebuked Satan with in the wilderness. You remember Matthew 4, verse 4? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Friends, in your life today, has God put you in a situation where you feel under-resourced and overwhelmed to accomplish? Has God put you in a situation where your excuses back to him in prayer are this, bad location, Lord, bad timing, bad accounting. This seems like an utter planning administrative nightmare. We've got five bread. We've got two fish. And you're looking to the Lord going, what are we going to do? Maybe you've been given the opportunity to step up and take on a leadership job and a role in your job. And you're looking at the impossibility that you can't do it. You don't have enough experience. It's just too hard. I'm not smart enough. Or students, kids, maybe God has put you in class with other students who really need Jesus and you feel inadequate to be a witness in their life. Or maybe God has put an opportunity in your path to serve in this church, but you feel underqualified for it. It's outside your comfort zone. You're not good enough, you tell others. Or maybe you're tempted to envy someone else's family and you think you'll never measure up to be the mom or dad or husband or wife that someone else is. Friends, whenever you're in these situations and you're looking down at your five loaves of bread and two fish and you begin to think, how's God going to use this? How's God going to use me? Remember, Jesus did not feed the 5,000 unilaterally. He provided the bread, but the disciples had to deliver it. He uses means. He uses people to show off his power. Friends, when we tell God that's impossible, you're telling God he's not God. God takes pleasure and putting us in situations where God gets to show off he is God. Friends, we should never put God in a box and say that he can't do something. He is God, and we are the sheep of his pasture. Author James Edwards says it in a really helpful way. He says this, Jesus sees possibilities where his disciples see only impossibilities. For God can multiply even the smallest gifts if they are made available to him. What's the instruction? Use whatever God has already given you. Do whatever he commands of you. Leave the results up to him. Now, After this provision here in the feast, Jesus instructs now his disciples, guys, you didn't really get much of a break. We had to get back to work. We got to hightail it out of here because according to John's gospel, they want to make me king right now. And the hour has not come. We got to get in our boat and we got to get out of Dodge. It's getting crazy up in her. Which leads to point number four. The fearful disciples are separated from Jesus. Now, 
If you've been paying attention, this isn't the first rodeo with Jesus' disciples in a boat with some bad weather. Back in Mark chapter 4, if you can remember that far back, we saw Jesus in the boat with the disciples, but he's taking a nap. He's sleeping in the midst of a storm. But this time, Jesus stays behind. Don't think that's an accident. He's teaching his disciples to trust him. Trust me in rest. Trust me with the bread. Now trust me when I'm not in the boat with you. He's going to put his disciples in a situation where they're not simply fearful about bread or having enough food for the massive buffet. They're fearful for their life. For the first time in quite a while, Jesus is separated from his disciples. Keep in mind, the disciples are tired. It's been a long day. An amazing thing had just happened. Their hands probably calloused from carrying these heavy baskets of bread to over 5,000 people. The last thing you want is a storm at sea. The last thing you want is to be separated from your compassionate shepherd. And this time the struggle is not a struggle again for bread. It is a struggle for their life. Their bodies are tired. Their minds are weighed down with fatigue. Their power to keep rowing is diminishing like quicksand. And not to mention, when is this taking place? Mark says, in the fourth watch of the night. When most of us are flipping to the cold side of the pillow. Can I get an amen? All right. It's between 3 and 6 a.m., it's a Roman's way of saying it's, it's, not, it's, it's not even really late. It's not even really early. It is right in the middle, 3 to 6 a.m. But then all of a sudden, they're struggling. Fear. Literally, the Greek is they're tortured inside as they're rowing this boat with no sight of their Savior. An object, a moving object in the pitch black dark starts moving towards the boat. You see, these veteran fishermen had seen a lot of things in their day on that lake. But this time there was a great fear. Fear they had never probably experienced before. Were they afraid of the storm? Yes. Were they afraid they wouldn't make it to the end? Yes. But now they're afraid, Mark says, because they thought they saw a ghost. Parents, I'll leave that up to you to disciple your children later. We're not going to get into pneumatology and ghost right now, but anyway. Kids, you have nothing to be afraid of? We can talk more later. What did they see walking on the sea at 3 to 6 in the morning? Maybe a better question is, who did they see walking towards them on that lake? They saw the same one who found them fishing beside that lake years ago. They were separated from Jesus for a season, but now the compassionate shepherd was coming for them. They were physically separated from Jesus, but the heart of Jesus stayed knitted to the heart of his disciples. But it wasn't the presence of an object that brought them peace. 
It was his voice. It was only when they heard their compassionate shepherd utter these words, take heart. It is I. The Greek is ego I me. I am. There's only one ego I me in the Greek Septuagint, and that is Yahweh. Exodus 3.14, as he revealed himself to Israel, I am has sent you. Jesus says, I am. As soon as they hear the God-man utter those words, the wind ceases and fear is gone. Friends, you would think after the feeding of the 5,000, you would think seeing a real human being walk on water still a storm, and claim an identity as God incarnate. You would think these disciples had graduated from Jesus' seminary. But notice how honest the gospel writers are about how slow to believe his own disciples are. Look at verses 51 to 52. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. To my non-Christian friend, you might be praying for God to send you a miracle. There's your proof. Miracles do not change the condition of your heart. Seeing a blind person see will not change you into a Christian. Seeing a leper healed will not change you into a Christian. Seeing over 5,000 people fed from five loaves of bread and two fish will not make you a Christian. Seeing a storm still like that, seeing a man walk on water will not change your heart to become a Christian. Only God, by his spirit, by trusting in who Jesus claims to be, can make you a Christian. If you're not a Christian here this morning, answer that question for yourself. Who do you say Jesus is? What do you think your needs really are? Do you believe that this Jesus can meet your greatest need? As a review, who is Jesus in Mark chapter 6? Listen again. He gives his disciples rest to restore their souls and bodies when they are tired. He shows compassion to people who are feeling aimless, exhausted, helpless, and weak. He makes possible what man finds impossible to accomplish. He takes the initiative on his own and serves and blesses the many. He commands the many to lie down in green pastures and feeds them. He leads his people on paths of righteousness and obedience. He leads his disciples when they are afraid and brings them peace once again. Friends, who is this Jesus? This is the shepherd of Psalm 23. Whom David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus is the Davidic shepherd of Ezekiel 34 who searches out his lost sheep. He binds up the injured. He strengthens the weak. He protects them from faithless shepherds who do not care about them. And Jesus is the good shepherd of John 10 who lays down his life for the sheep. 
You see, when Jesus broke bread that day and he uttered a blessing to God, friends, that was only the appetizer. There would come a day where the shepherd would also become the Passover lamb who would die under the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Do you remember Mark 14? Same gospel. We read about the inauguration of the Lord's Supper that commemorates his death for his people. Mark 14, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. See, friends, as human beings, as flesh and blood, we need physical bread and sustenance to live. That's, that's part of the way we learn how to trust in God for our daily bread. But friends, Mark chapter 6 is giving us a deeper need that we have. We are made in God's image, and we have a need that only eternally can be satisfied in Jesus. You see, our greatest problem is not economics or world wars. Our greatest problem is that we have sinned against a good God. We have spurned a good shepherd And Jesus cares about all suffering. Our inward bowel should groan when we see people hurt. But we should also grieve and mourn when we see people living in sin and separated from Jesus. Friends, this is why Jesus came. He came as the bread from heaven to earth so that we might feast and feed on him. He died in our place. His body and his blood shed for us. And then three days later, God raised him from the dead. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, and he has authority to take it up again. Don't we have a good shepherd? What needs do you have this morning that our good shepherd doesn't already know? Why should you tell Jesus? Because he cares for you. In verses 53 to 56, Mark just captures for us what Jesus continued to do. People saw him and they flocked to him. People touched his garments in faith and many were made well. Jesus looked over the crowds in that Galilean hill country with compassion that day. And today, where is Jesus today? He sits at the right hand of the Father. He ever intercedes for all of us who come to God through him, and he has compassion on you. He has compassion on you. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing truth. The Lord is our shepherd, and we shall not want. Lord, every need you are aware of, and you are kind and compassionate in our weakness, in our suffering, and in our sin. Lord, I pray that you were honored as we looked at our Lord Jesus and his compassion for the people that his blood was shed for.
Lord, I pray that we would care about all suffering, both here in Fort Smith and Barley and in Ukraine and beyond. And I pray that we would be a people who especially care about eternal suffering. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.